All right. Well, good evening, guys. It's good to good to see you again. I'm glad that we've made it back for the second in this Advent series. Um, this is, as we mentioned in the first week, we are kind of hearkening back to these older themes uh, in Advent of death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And with this being Advent 2, we're particularly looking at this theme of judgment. And um, Bill, why don't, would you just remind us quickly about kind of what you're doing at, uh, at Salem Tabernacle and the way you're sort of bringing this theme and in, into conversation with some of the more contemporary themes? Yep. So for last week, the more contemporary theme, uh, I believe, was hope. And, you know, the older theme or the I guess, more orthodox theme was death. And so we talked about how waiting mediates the relationship between hope and death. Uh, this week, like you said, the more orthodox uh, theme is judgment and the more contemporary theme is peace. And, you know, I don't know, again, there's a lot of different backgrounds, but I grew up in a church environment where judgment and peace never went well together. You know, judgment brought us anything but peace. Uh, it terrified us. It threatened us. It coerced us. Or if it gave us peace, it was because it was the thing that was going to happen to our enemies and not us, right? Mm -hmm. um, in In ways that I think are not consistent with the biblical narrative and the ways of Jesus. And so Dietrich Bon like one of one of the themes out of the Bonhoeffer devotional for this week is mystery. And so you have peace, you have judgment, and you have mystery. And what I'm looking forward to hearing you guys talk a little bit about is how how our our imagination can be reimagined to maybe see a more comforting view of judgment that can bring the kind of peace that we're that we all crave right and so you know that's probably how we would want to look at these texts is what's the relationship between peace and judgment and what kind of imagination can the themes of advent advent spark in us to be able to rethink judgment and then rethink peace and what peace might mean in light of that yeah right well before we get into this we do want to come back to something that we're we're going to be doing throughout this Advent series, and that is incorporating some music. Um, so this week, I am thrilled that we have Danielle Larson. Danielle is a friend of all, all of ours here. Uh, she, as you'll hear in just a moment, has an unbelievable voice. In fact, she sung at my wedding, um, but she is a dear friend, and she is going to be singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile. 
Would you go ahead and read the gospel text for us? Yes, it is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord Christ. So I'll throw a question out there for Dr. Green, and we can let him begin to stir the pot with all of the possible directions this can go in. The theme is judgment. The theme is peace. The theme is um, an imagination to reimagine those words. Why do you feel the tradition in Advent takes us to John's baptism here um, to begin thinking about judgment and peace? Mm -hmm. Well, John's ministry, right, is the, it's the forerunning ministry. It's the one that, that prepares the way for Jesus and the one who points the way to Jesus, that names him as the one who has come. So, so John's ministry is signaling the arrival of, of the king and the kingdom he brings. That, that makes sense. But also, I mean, that makes an obvious kind of sense. But I think beyond that, there's a way in which the coming of the Lord is gracious in part because it prepares us for itself. Right? That, that Jesus does not simply appear out of nowhere. John appears. I mean, that's the way the gospel begins. In those days, John the Baptist appears, or John appears baptizing. And he appears in this, he's out there. Like, geographically, he's out there. But also, spiritually, he's out there. And, and yet, at that extreme, he's announcing this coming that we have to prepare for. And the announcement itself is already preparing us. It's It's attuning us. It's orienting us to that arrival that that is going to be gracious, but nonetheless disruptive and interruptive. I think that's that's what Advent is, right? I mean, the whole of this season is a is a preparing, a, a preparing and a being prepared for for the arrival of of Jesus. It seems in the Gospels, uh, it seems like there's like a strategy a way of writing where they often list groups who show up. So you have like the Pharisees and tax collectors, and then you have, or or you have the Pharisees and then you have sinners and tax collectors before you get to like the prodigal son, or you have religious leaders clogging the doorway and then people tunneling through. In this case, you seem to have a wide swath of people who are coming to be baptized. They're confessing their sins and there's like ease of baptism. John is baptizing them, no issues. And then the group of Pharisees and Sadducees come and it's like full stop. And John gets very aggressive and harsh with them. Are we meant to see something here in in the tradition of talking about judgment and the poor? 
are we meant to see something between these two groups where one group has ease of access into the water and then the other group seems to like not be denied but gets like put through the gauntlet before you come don't don't just come and dunk yourself You, you have work to do like are we meant to be troubled by the two groups and how john interacts with them i think we are but we have to be careful not to let our presumptions our presumptions have to be confronted i think first and, and this is what I mean. I I imagine that I know all three of us, but certainly I, I, I would I would guess most of the people who are listening have been shaped in Christianities that are defined over against Jews, a, a way of fantasizing about Jews on the one hand and Catholics on the other. And, and we've imagined our kind of born again Christianity as having a relationship with God that's personal. That is therefore both is unlike Catholics on the one hand, which is formalistic, is priestly, it's mediated rather than immediate. And on the other hand, it is through Jesus and is not tied to the law in the way that we caricaturize Jewish faith as being legalistic and determined by more a moralism right and so i think because of that even those of us who try to distance ourselves from the obvious kind of racist and bigoted forms of that way of thinking and feeling it's still easy for us to jump to conclusions about who the pharisees and sadducees are right it's remarkable that as you just pointed out bill that john is attracting this whole group of people like wildly diverse crowd right has gathered around john including pharisees and sadducees who have a lot of disagreements and yet they're coming to this baptism of repentance they're coming because they want to be ready for the coming of the lord and and then john warns them right so this is the way the the gospel reads when he saw many pharisees and sadducees coming for baptism he said you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume. So I think it would be deeply ironic, tragic, for us to not check our own presumptions about who who these people are and what's bringing them to the water. And so I, I think we have to take seriously the possibility that John is misjudging them. Now, he may not be, and I think we also have to take seriously the possibility that he's absolutely right about what's motivating these Pharisees and Sadducees, at least some of them. But I don't want to rush to that. I think we need to ask, how does he know? How does John know that these Pharisees and Sadducees are are simply fleeing the wrath to come and are not accounting for their own sins? Who? How does he know that they're not bringing forth fruit worthy of repentance? Isn't the fact that they're coming to him a sign? Isn't that fruit in some way? If it's not, how does he know it's not? How does he recognize it? And we know about John from later in the Gospel of Matthew that he isn't sure about Jesus. He is in the moment of baptism. It's shown to him. But later, are you the one or do we look for another? Right. So I I, I think that it's possible. I think we are supposed to stop and ask ourselves, what does John know? And does he, in fact, know what he thinks he knows about these people who've come? 
Do you think it could also be a possibility where because he knows that they're leaders and they have the bandwidth to be talked to that way, that maybe he's saying something to everybody by talking to them? Yes, I think that's absolutely possible. I think that's absolutely possible. And that there's one way of hearing this is that if this word is, I mean, if if we if we assume that John is right, right, that he's discerned something that's in the crowd, even if it's not in every single one of these Pharisees, it's somewhere in the crowd. Then when he speaks it, his word is a part of the baptism, right? His part is is the 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 cutting edge of the coming of the word of the Lord that is actually preparing them for entry. It's not excluding them. And I think I think it's important. He doesn't say you cannot be baptized. He just says you have to understand what this baptism means and what this baptism requires of you. So I, I think absolutely it's possible that this is this is a word to everyone. It, I think it certainly should be a word to us. And I, I think one example of that would be he asked this question, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance? And and what that suggests to me is that there's a kind of fear of wrath that means your fruit can never be worthy. If If you're simply fleeing from what you imagine to be the wrath of God, right, then your life is never going to bear, it's not going to be life giving, because you're you're haunted by terrorized by the the specter of eternal punishment and man i don't know what was true for these pharisees and sadducees but i know for sure that a lot of us were raised in churches with just that kind of fear we were fleeing the wrath to come and that fear was making it so that we couldn't bring forth any life-giving fruit we we were terrorized can i ask you one more question yeah of course that's it's like an ephesian sentence so it's probably got a lot of commas and it's probably (laughs) 15 questions um last week swords into plowshares spears into pruning hooks right and so there's the sense of like we're moving from tools that work immediately like swords to tools that work over a long period of time like plowshares and pruning hooks right yeah and in the Isaiah text, just to touch on it briefly, it's, you know, a root will come, a branch will grow. And again, you have this sense of like, slow moving, like in the latter days, yeah, something's going to grow. And then in the Romans text, you have the God of endurance, and the God of encouragement. So yeah. I, I have a personally curious question for you. And then one that's maybe more rooted in what we're talking about. But like, where did all the immediacy come from in the way many of us were raised like to like be healed of my sin in the twinkling of an eye and come to the altar and have it immediately be gone or the issue or the addiction or the anger or the depression like immediate deliverance and then you you have hundreds of years of prophecy you have yeah even in Jesus's ministry the agricultural analogies one right after the other of things that take a lot of time and then romans is glorifying the god of endurance and encouragement 
to say nothing of all the stuff Paul says about, you know, not sprinting, just like running with endurance, the race, like what is so, what is holy about the pace and the rhythm and where does that like almost toxic immediacy and urgency come from? And is Advent trying to work, work that out of us is, is Advent trying to tell us that the judgment of God is like something we can settle into and not be anxious in and give ourselves the allowance of time, which we found out was limited last week, which seems a little counterintuitive. So there you go. I threw a whole bunch of things at you on the yeah, table. man. So much. I think, I think obviously I can't, I don't understand. I don't know well enough to, to name all of the factors, but I think two things are, are pretty undeniably causal in shaping the ways we came to talk about and expect God's action to work in our lives. One is we were, we were assuming without realizing it, we were assuming that what makes God's power, God's power is that it happens in inexplicable ways, right? So God was whatever power it is that's making happen the stuff we can't explain. And this is this is why we were so we were addicted to the miraculous and the abnormal, to the strange, because that is what we identified as proof that God was among us, that God was acting. So yeah. if you know, if, if my body healed itself over time, I'm not impressed. But if I have a miraculous healing, it happens instantly and inexplicably, and that's God. I know it had to be God because it didn't take time. And so I think slowly we started to, to assume that everything that's God's happens in that sudden inexplicable way. Right. And I think that was a drastic mistake, but to make it worse, that was then hitched to a kind of consumerist mindset and affection where we were trying to sell to other people they should come they should be a part of what we are doing because mm-hmm. god acts in these ways in our churches in 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 this house god does this if you come with us if you raise your family here if you sow your money into this ministry what comes out of it is this inexplicable sudden change of fortune and without again i don't want to paint everyone as having kind of wicked motives because i don't think that's it at all i think it must most of this was carried out with the best of intentions and yet without realizing it we were caught up in in a kind of marketing and what we were marketing is a way of life that guarantees not only success but quick success and not only the outcomes that you want but the outcomes you want immediately and and we we knew that was wrong because we we often would talk about how that's not how God works, and yet you're right. I think we very rarely embraced the slow work, the unfolding of the work of God over time. We we didn't praise patience and endurance. We didn't honor the ways in which God does take generations to work out His purposes in in the lives of people. And I, I think at best we gave lip service to that. Mostly what we communicated was if you know what you're doing, you can get what you want and you can get it now. And I, I, I don't, again, I don't think that's because 
everyone was greedy and driven by the worst intentions. I think a lot of that was we were just naive and without realizing it, we, we got caught up in the spirit of our age. And yet there seems to be like this weird dichotomy where he says, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which again, sounds like a slow methodical lifestyle. And, but then he seems to be saying, do that immediately because the ax is touching the tree. Yeah. The ax is already striking. Yeah. It's almost like he's saying, hurry up and slow down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Start cultivating immediately, but also cultivate. Don't just come here for like, you know, a uh, double Dutch in and out, dunk in your fine kind of baptism. He's saying, move. This is going to be a process, but you need to start that process now. Like there seems to be an urgency to start the slow process. Does that sound? Well, I, th- I think the urgency is God is already acting. Hmm you better be aware of that. The urgency is not, you better get your stuff together and and make all of this good happen. It's you better stop lying to yourself and presuming that you are sons and daughters of Abraham. The, the ax is already striking. And, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, Brewer, I want you to get to weigh in on this point. But to me, the hope, the gospel in these texts is when you see john's word the axe is already laid to the fruit of the to to the root of the tree and then isaiah's word that this i gotta find it here Hmm. a shoot shall come from the stump of jesse and a branch grow out of his roots oh that it's not until we are stumped but it's not until the axe has struck us down that the growth can even begin, right? And that—that that I think is his point. <laughs> that that's I think really good, man. Point. That's really, really good, really good. Yeah, I mean that's that's the gospel. I think, right? Go ahead, Bill. Bill's, I mean, Bill is a Manning, Chris. Um, I think. I mean, yes. I think that's incredible news. And Chris, I mean, I think what it makes me think of, even before when we were when you were going through talking a bit about the gospel text, is this what we see throughout the text, throughout scripture, over and over again about these ways that God moves in and among and through his people and especially his prophets, right? Where it's like acts in ways that actually create new conditions new ground for repentance makes that possible right i think about hosea chapter one this kind of list of this is what you're going to name your kids and this is what it's going to mean um you know you're not my people and i'm not your god and the next verse you know in the place where it was said um you know you're not my people i'm not your god you will be called children of living god yeah yeah and so it feels it, it it feels like you know, something, something like that is happening here that his, or to, to, to quote Robert Jensen, um, man, now I'm going to forget it. I think it's, uh, the threats of God. How does he say it, Chris? The threats of God are never as, forget the word he uses as the promises. Uh, Yeah. I don't remember his phrasing, but essentially the, 
the threats fit inside the promises, right? So the, right. the threats, they're always in service of exactly, promises. Right. The, the, the threats never have the duration that the promises do because the yeah. threats are penultimate and the promises are ultimate. Yeah. The threats are temporary and provisional and the promises are endless. They're, they're always they're not endless in the sense that they're never fulfilled, but in the sense that the fulfillment is endlessly good. And the... So yeah, the the no of God, right, is always in service of the yes of God. Right. The yes is essential. The no is necessary only to bring us to the yes. Right, which which is why we could say something, and it is said, right, that His promises are yes and amen. Absolutely, but I I I think yes, I think that's exactly right, but I think we have to take seriously and take some time to take in why it is that the axe has to be has to strike the tree at all yeah no you're that's good right and why do we have to be stumped before we can learn the ways of the lord right it's only those who have come to the end of their way of knowing mm-hmm. that can begin the way of the lord's knowing and I, why why is that right and what does that say about us? What does that say about God? That that is his way. Or that that is his way of dealing with us. Hmm. I had this um super, super quick story. I had this moment with my daughter where she got caught lying. She's six. And she says to me, you know, I was talking to her about lying and how it affects relationships. And so we uh she was asking a lot of questions about it so i went into the kitchen filled up a glass of water and did the classic thing i dropped one drop of blue food coloring into the water and i left it on her dresser for a few days and each day i mean the the it's amazing the the water just got darker and darker and darker blue and she says after like 3 days she says i get it one little lie can ruin everything and i'm like it's possible that that's the case And she goes, but how do we get this water clear again? And here's what I did. And I think this was like a burst of light from the Holy Spirit because this wasn't my plan. I'm not nearly this good of a dad as this is about to sound. But we went into the kitchen and I never dumped the water out. I just started filling it up with new water. And as I started filling it up, all of a sudden it got clearer and clearer and clearer. And then it was crystal clear. And Sophia says... So he never, God never dumps us out. He just fills us mm-hmm. until all the bad things go away. And I was thinking of the Romans text where he says, like, the God of encouragement will fill you with hope. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent, like, part of how he stumps us is by filling us with so much of himself that all that other stuff is displaced. And we could yeah. go through these seasons where we feel like he is a thief in the night, like he is taking things from us like stuff is leaving our life that we were holding on to but he fills us into emptiness in a lot of ways mm-hmm. he, Absolutely. He, he fills us into that and i think it was uh it was ambrose who said in the isaiah text that the spirit rested on him yeah and that refers back to genesis one where the spirit rested over mm-hmm. the waters and like what chris brewer just said was God is always creating new new ways for us to repent. 
and new spaces where we can repent. And so, Chris, I was just wondering, like, his judgment and even his destruction being also at once a new creation, like where he's making all things new as opposed to destroying and starting over again. Can you speak a little bit to that about how he fills us so that he can empty us? He destroys us in a creative way. Like what, what is this? And I think maybe this is where we need that new imagination, right? That's exactly what I was about to say. This is the mystery. The mystery is that only God can act in this way. Only God can act in ways that hold all good opposites together and, and undoes all that is opposed to our good. Like only God can do that. And, and that is why our hope has to be only in God. That only God can die and in that way put death to death. Right? Only God mm-hmm. can take on weakness and mortality and finitude and in that way right fill us with his strength and his abundant life so i think we're talking here about the mystery of god's action like what it is that god does and these these texts are are signaling that in all kinds of ways right that the axe is laid to the to the root of the tree but it's out of the stump that this branch grows the shoot comes and also in in the isaiah text that he strikes with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips is what kills. So we've got to hear the killing and the striking as a kiss, right? As a whisper, right? As a, you know, a sweet word spoken. There was, there was a moment that my daughter, my oldest is home for Thanksgiving from college. And she, today we were out, and she said something, and it was so cute. Like, it was unbelievably sweet and cute, this little comment she made. And I, like, grabbed my chest and was like, ah, oh, you're killing me. And it was painful. Like, it was so sweet and cute. And I was so glad to have her home, right, that it it actually hurt me. But it didn't hurt me. And I think, again, that we're built for that. And I think in the truest moments of our lives whether it's at the highest heights or the deepest depths, we, we sense something of how all of it holds together. In the, in the language of Colossians, Chris, I know you just preached this on Sunday, but in him, all things hold together. Like all good things coalesce and coincide in him. And everything that's opposed to our good is, is displaced by him, right? To use that, I love that image, Bill, of just letting the, the water fill us. So I think if we're going to talk rightly about the ways in which god's goodness sets us right we have to say all of this right and we have to talk in paradoxical ways we have to set these glories beside each other right and and we don't have to downplay the 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 strangeness and even the, the the threatening dimensions of these images we just have to hear them rightly we have to hear them as in fact gospel i think this this opens on to this opens out to a few more questions but maybe we're best served if we go let's move to the romans text and then see see kind of where this takes us do we do we need to read this do we want to read this or just you want me to read it real fast 
Go for it. Yeah, go, go, Bill. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And and Chris, you can stop me if you want to jump in while I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Chris, tell us what all of that means. <laughs> uh, there's a reason. Um, Paul earned this reputation as saying many things difficult to understand. I, I, I think there's so much here. I'll make just a couple of quick points, and then I want to focus on this line about Christ serving the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God. So first, this, this, the language of endurance or steadfastness that in, in other translations, there's a line about the endurance of the scriptures, which can be under, can be heard or interpreted as a way of identifying the endurance the scriptures call for. But I think it's also true that the scriptures have to be read in a way that is like endurance. Like you have to endure the scriptures in order to receive the endurance the scriptures talk about. And, and this is the, the case because God's word does to us what it is it's saying should be done by us. And Paul makes this point by saying, you know, we've received this steadfastness from the scriptures in the hope of the God of steadfastness, making it so that we can live together. And so the scriptures are working in us, the character of the God who's given us these texts and called us to be these people or this people. And that all of this, he's harmonizing us, right? He's, he's making it so that we can live with one another and that that depends upon steadfastness, right? That depends upon a certain kind of stability. And I think we speak speaking specifically here about the Christians who shaped me, the churches I've known, we don't honor steadfastness enough. I, I I've talked with you guys about this before, but this in the Zacchaeus story, you know, he climbs up the sycamore tree to see over the crowd, right? So he's too small. The crowd is is obscuring his view. So he climbs up this tree to see over, right? And in the Balaam story, Balaam is forcing his way into the future against the grain of what God wants for him. But the beast he's riding, right, takes him down this pathway in which the walls narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow until finally he is confronted by the angel of the Lord. 
And I think those two images for me speak to the kinds of people we need to be in community in order to be able to live together. And that is we have to be as steadfast as walls and trees, right? One is unnatural, like man-made, cultural. It's built, but it's stable, right? It stays put. And then the other is natural and takes time to come to maturity, but it stays put. And if if Balaam and Zacchaeus, right, if the rebellious prophet and the the curious, convicted tax collector are ever going to come to Jesus, some of us just have to stay put long enough to make that possible for them, right? And I think Paul, one way of thinking about everything Paul writes is that he's trying to build particular kinds of communities that are going to last, right? Like Paul is not an evangelist trying to win as many converts to Christianity as he can, as quickly as he can. He's an apostle founding communities that are going to last into the future, into the future of, of hope that God has made possible in Jesus. And that depends upon steadfastness. So I don't know if we want to take time to talk about that, but I think that's a, a theme that shows up over and over in Paul. But specifically to this, do you want to speak to that before I go to the point about circumcision? No, I um, I, I have a question about why he may have been hard on the Pharisees based on what you might talk about now. So say, say yeah. speak a little bit about why like the Gentiles really come in strong in this text from Paul amidst you know, the spirit resting on Christ and Isaiah and John preparing the way here all in, in, in though, in that context comes this discussion about cultures and ethnicities uh, becoming unified here. So Absolutely. why is this yeah. showing up? Why, why is this part of Advent? Yes, because the, the hope is for the poor and the nations. So the covenant people of God, the, the people who are on the inside, so to speak, of God's project, those who are closest to what it is that God has done already and announced already are, are the blessed. They're, they're the ones in a position of seeing what God wants for the future of the world. And, and yet that blessing has been substituted for privilege, I think, for many of them. And we know that because around them, the poor are suffering and the nations are not hearing the news that the prophets insist is for them to hear. And th that's why Paul, you know, quotes passage after passage after passage from the prophets that the Messiah is going to come and the Gentiles are going to rejoice. And he's going to come to rule the nations with a rod of iron in the language of the Psalms. But Precisely for that reason, the Gentiles have hope in him. He's their hope, as well as Israel's hope. He's the God of Israel in whom the Gentiles hope. All the nations of the earth have to hope in him who comes from Israel. And this, I think, is at the heart of Paul's vision of the gospel, right? That God's people, Israel, Theirs is the promise, theirs are the promises, theirs is the glory, theirs is the presence, theirs is the covenant, and and yet there must be made room within their walls for all of the peoples of the earth, right, for all the nations of the earth, and all of the poor, 
to receive the justice that is due them. And Paul imagines that, and I think imagines is the right word, he imagines that as what God intends to do. That's what we mean by the coming of the Lord, is the, the Lord is going to come, the poor are going to be restored and healed, exalted to their rightful place, and all of the nations are going to gather around the God of Israel and are going to receive the peace and joy that has been promised to them. And that promise is given through Israel and by Israel, but not only to Israel. And Paul is convinced that this is what Jesus has inaugurated. This is this is what Jesus has started in his resurrection. Brewer, did you want to say or ask anything? Well, I mean, let me come back to this, Chris. I mean, I, I do want to say more about this or hear more about it, but I think something that does, I mean, talking about the steadfastness, I think part of what, you know, part of what strikes me interesting there is that, like, that need for steadfastness is how there probably are steadfast those who are steadfast among us and that that gift is not perceived as a gift. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or, or even, I mean, maybe communities, I don't need to individualize it, no, I agree. Uh, but, but that it's not, it's not perceived as a gift. It's perceived as, um, you know, a curse. And so I think that's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's something there that, that strikes me. And I think, to the point you're making, um, you know, to the point you're making here, um, I guess I just think we, we don't have, or, or I didn't have, let's say much hope of, of the Lord's judgment. Yeah. And I, I I do remember the first time I heard a minister talk about judgment as something we should pray for, and that it and that it's good news that it's that it's good that the Lord's judgment mm-hmm. is something we should pray for. And so to talk to hear it hear about it talked in terms of hope, something we should hope for, was yeah. so alarming. Um, yeah. So I mean, why why do you think that's the case? Well, again, obviously, you're talking about a complex of reasons, and I'm sure it differs in various ways, person to person. But at the heart of it is, we don't understand ourselves as the poor. I mean, in Scripture, the poor are those people who have been wronged, and therefore have only God to rescue them. But they are poor because the king has failed them. They are poor because the covenant has not been kept. They're poor because owners of the field have not followed the law and left room for them to harvest, to to glean from the harvest, and so on and so on and so forth. The poor are poor because they have been abused. They've been neglected. They've been forgotten. And almost certainly they're poor because tragedy has come to them. Misfortune has come to them. So in our terms, they've been disabled, they've been widowed, they have 
suffered catastrophe, right? The it's a famine and their crops fail and they don't have a fail safe, right? I mean, think about the story of the widow, the prophet visits and makes you know, pronounces this miraculous word over her so that the oil never ceases to flow in her house. And then Jesus tells us that there were there were many widows in that day, but only one received her son again, right? There are many lepers, but only Naaman is healed. So think about all of those countless people whose whose lives collapsed because fortune turned against them, right? Or because, and or, because the people who were responsible to intercede for them did not. That's what scripture means when it talks about the poor. And the poor look to God to rescue them. They look to God to, in the language of the psalm for this week, they look to God to defend them and to crush their oppressor, right? And that's exactly what the prophets say over and over again. God is going to do that. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to do God's will on behalf of the poor. And in, by extension, then, all of the nations are poor because they don't have this revelation of the God of Abraham. They don't have, they're, they build altars to the unknown God. Israel knows the name of the God of the nations. And so in that, in that sense, even though the wicked prosper, the wicked are privileged, they're poor when it comes to the knowledge of the Lord. The Spirit does not rest upon them. And yet, over and over and over and over again, God's people fall into the temptation, the presumption that John identifies in the Sadducees and Pharisees. Which is, you think that because you are the people God has started with, you're the only people that matter. Or you think that because God, you're the people God has started with, God started with you because you're superior to. And that's his point. Like, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones, right? Which is a, a play on words, and it's a, it's a cutting remark, to say the least. And then he immediately says, and the axe is already another cutting remark. The axe is already laid to the to the root of the tree. But that is also a word of hope. And it's it's simply restoring the people of God back to the character of the God who called them in the first place. This is a God of all, the God who intends to be all in all. And the hope of judgment is is the hope that he's going to set things right. So to answer your question directly, Chris, I think it is we confuse privilege with blessing and we confused the fact that we like the way our lives are going by and large, that we didn't need God to set things right. And we, we lost, we weren't poor in spirit. We lost the, the, the interior poverty that we should have cultivated and, and kept alive. And that, the spirit is constantly calling us back to it. Is this, you think, I mean, that you think this is why in, what is it? Um, in first Peter, maybe that line about judgment beginning in the house of the Lord, mm -hmm. that this, the, the, is that the same move? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure this, I mean, Peter came by it honestly, <laughs> like the axe right, was laid yeah, to the yeah. root of that tree. Yeah, I mean, so he's he's naming. I mean, he's talking out of his experience. Yeah, 
And I, I think that's crucial. Like you, we don't, we never have the right to talk about what God is going to do to those people. Hmm. It, it, it is, you know, Balthazar has that astonishing line about, I must never imagine anyone going into hell before I do. Right. Like I, right. I because what that reveals about the own about his own heart, if that were the case. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In the Isaiah text, it talks about like, you know, a child being able to put his hand over the the den of the snake mm-hmm. and won't get bit, right? In in this new vision of what the world could be like if it's just. And then John calls the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, a brood yeah. of vipers. What I wanted to ask was, is it possible that, like, like remember the story where the rich young ruler walks away and Jesus says it's very difficult for the rich to enter heaven? And Peter says, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, for for man, this is actually impossible. It's actually impossible for a person of great means and privilege to get saved apart from a work of the Lord. Yep. Is it possible that John got different with the pharisees because when they came down he's now looking at the people who could be the vipers that bite the child's hand or they're also capable of being the viper that doesn't bite the child's hand. they're holding the ability to live into that isaiah vision or prove that it's still a ways away absolutely because i mean think think of the connection to the serpent lifted up in the wilderness yeah right it, this this is not a future in which there are no wolves and there are no lions and there are no snakes it's a future in which the wolf lives with the lamb and the lion feeds with the calf i mean and, and that also is a connection to john's prophecy that that the messiah is going to come and gather the wheat right he's going to gather he's going to fill his barn why so that the cow and the bear can graze together so something is being altered there the, the 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 nature of the bear as we know it is being altered the nature of the lion as we know it is being altered but it's a lion truly and and this is this is why i would say both about the beasts of the earth and about people who are beastly we haven't seen who they really are yet yeah like what does it look like for there to be a serpent that's a serpent that's not a danger to the child well that's the sense in which jesus is the serpent and that is what he's making and what does it mean for a lion to be a lion and to graze like the ox that's the sense in which jesus is the lion and and what does it mean for a person of privilege to live a life where that privilege is constantly being offered to privilege others well, I think I think the way I would put that is the the privilege is like the ravenous nature that is extracted from the blessing. So I think prosperity, having plenty, having abundance, that's not privilege. Privilege is like the diseased, ravenous, poisonous, the the venom in the snake that has yeah. to be removed and the 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 desire to prey on others. So I think privilege is is a is problematic blessing abundance prosperity is not inherently prob- problematic and we we can and are called to live lives that are lives of blessing and prosperity and yet not ever presume 
that privilege means what we're told it means. So in, in your earlier podcast, Chris Brewer would always ask you at the end, so what's the good news here, right? It's one of my favorite questions. And it seems like the good news for the poor in all these texts is that the things that are oppressing them and the life that they've been robbed of is going to be given to them in, in, in God's life and future. Yeah. Could you say, and this is maybe the more difficult one to hear, that the good news for the ones who have maybe caused the poor to be poor is that they will be made in God's judgment different so that they're no longer that way. Absolutely. This is this is Mary's song. He sends the rich away empty. Empty, yes. Well, why? So they can actually be filled up. I mean, they've, they've right. been consumed. So yes. my question here is, pastorally chris how how do you i like if you're if you're preaching that or if you're talking to people or if you're just in a discussion about advent and you're having these conversations like how how do you speak to the person who remember so remember when peter says if the rich can't get into heaven who can be saved it's like it's a revelation that his mind his mind up until that point has said if you're rich it's because you've done everything right that's right right so like where, how does advent chip away at that mindset of like because the the people who and i'll speak for myself the people who have the cards that tend to use those cards horribly and there's poor because of it mm-hmm. how do those people like how does advent reach the person who's convinced it's all happening because I've done so much good and I have all of this because I'm so right. You can't even hear that John is calling you a brood of vipers. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think that's it. I think you're, yes, you're putting your finger on it. I think two things have to happen. One is to realize that all of us have that in us still. Yeah. Like the, the wolf is in me. The bear is in me as well as the lamb. Yep. As well as the calf, the, the, the Pharisee and Sadducee in me, as well as the poor. And that, that will just always be true. Right. And even though God is always sorting that there will be chaff in me until the end. Right. So there, there are seasons of harvest in which God separates some of the wheat in me from some of the chaff in me, consumes some of the chaff. And then next year, same process again, all the way into the end. Right. So I think, and that's true of us, not only individually, I think that's true of us, as families it's true of us as communities it's true of us as peoples so i that i think first is we just we have to come to terms with that sanctifying redemptive work of god against the sin in us saving us from our sins it's it's going to happen the rest of our lives right and and just accept that right be be ready for it i think the other thing though is you have we it takes a lot of judgment to recognize the judgment of god and mm-hmm. to welcome it it takes a lot of discernment i'm sure the, the irony is right when john says to those pharisees and sadducees you brood of vipers every one of them that already had a lamb spirit recognized they were the first to recognize the the viper in themselves the ones that were most snake-like 
were least capable of hearing the word is true about them. They were the most offensive, right? And and so it's it's one of those things in which the people who are go back to that line in Romans about Jesus is doing this on behalf of the truth of God. The truth is God knows it, and the and the faithfulness of God to the truth that He is and sees and accomplishes. And this is one of the things I mentioned my father last last time in our discussion, but I, I was thinking this week, someone, a friend of mine asked me, what would you say is the best gift your dad gave you? And so I sat with that, prayed about it for a few days, and then it hit me, truthfulness. What, what I respect most about my father, of all the things I respect, is that I never saw him in any setting about any topic cling to an opinion when the truth was obvious Hmm. and and how rare that is (laughs) like to to see someone who's if it's true it's true even if that's not what i thought before even if that means i have to change my life to fit it like there he there's a kind of simplicity and truthfulness in him that I, i don't think i've ever seen in anyone else and the reason it's hard to see in other people is it's hard to live like that right and i think it it's incredibly painful to live like that. And I, I don't think God ever harms us, but a truthful life is a painful life. Yeah. It, I don't, it's a healthy life, but it is a painful life. And it's the kind of pain that we're often trying to narcotize. We're trying to, to keep from feeling. And I, I say all of that to say about my dad to say, I think that John is truthful in that way too. And there had to be some of those Sadducees and Pharisees who were who had some of that truthfulness as well. And they, of course, are the ones who are not defensive about that fact. So I, I think what Advent does is teach us truthfulness. We recognize that these things are are true about us. And it may take a long time to get there, but God is never pointing out our viper viperish nature to shame us. It's only, he never cuts down the tree simply so he can have fuel for the fire. I mean, if the tree's cut down, it's so that a shoot can grow out of that stump. And if if God's word is coming against us, and it is always, it's it's for good. And, and we have to find a way to accept that and, and even delight in it and have the hope of the correction. Last thing I'll say about this, you mentioned Robert Jensen earlier, Brew. But in, in one of his essays about the, the last judgment, I think that was the title of the essay, he says the greatest hope we have is that what is wrong in me can be made right, and the wrongs that I've done, I will be allowed to correct. That's what we, That's our hope, right? That every damage i've done i will be given the chance to undo it somehow to make to make it right right and that only god can do that only god can accomplish it and the accomplishment of that is the end of the world as we've known it but that's what we're hoping for and i think advent encourages us to hope for that and hope for nothing less than that it, it's painful. And this is back to, you know, what Fleming Rut- Rutledge said that you quoted last week, Brew. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. But it's good. I mean, it, it's a, it's, it's the kind of difficulty 
that opens out on joy. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear this and then I come back to the gospel text and and it just, it so changes everything about how I hear what John says. You know, to what end? Um, it, it It's... It's incredibly good news, but it's not not in some sort of cheap or or trite way. I mean, it's 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 that word. Like this is this is painful. I mean, to you know, to what Jensen says, and we'll be able, you know, to make it right. I mean, I can't, it's hard to imagine something more painful than that. I mean this this judgment has such such teeth, but not to the end of destruction right not ultimately for the person i mean just destruction of the evil destruction of the wickedness you know of the wrongdoing i mean we should have asked someone to come in and sing uh that so you know god's gonna cut you down (laughs) (laughs) the johnny cash yes absolutely well we should have done daniel's could not have been better but yeah if if you don't know that the man is going to come around, right? John, Johnny Cash. You know, it's interesting. Yes. As I'm hearing you guys, you know, start to close out here, I'm, it's so interesting that when the, the, the religious leaders want to know Jesus, where is your authority coming from? Like they're recognizing it as extremely authoritative, but of a very different sort. And they're saying, like, who gave you this authority? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, I'm only going to tell you that if you can tell me was John's baptism of God or is it of man? And it's clicking in my head that Jesus will not speak of his authority. If we don't understand John's baptism, like he could have picked a lot of things to say, was this of God or was this of man? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any one of the miracles, anything the disciples had done, like he could have picked all that stuff. But he chooses John's baptism and he's saying, like, it seems like the kind of authority that you hear in the Isaiah text that is on its way. And the kind of authority Jesus is saying, I won't even we won't talk about authority if you don't understand this baptism, this baptism that leaves the rich empty. This baptism that is a long, progressive process of cultivating repentance over time leave your title at the door when you go into this water kind of baptism that's the only way to begin talking about kingdom authority and all these other phrases is when we see it in the light of this particular moment where john's baptism is stripping is stripping us of anything that we hold that make the poor poor Mm -hmm. and keep them from keep them from having the life that god has called them to have yeah. Then you can start talking about authority when you, when you get that. Absolutely, and I, I mean, I know we've got to stop, but I, I think it's probably worth saying this, even if I don't say it quite right. That the judgment of God is ne- it comes to us and is always coming to us, as 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 John puts it, the axe is already laid to the to the root of the tree, but. The judgment of God is is something of itself. It, it is itself something distinct. It's never identical with what happens to us. So if if you know something disastrous happens in your life, 
ill fortune, a, a betrayal, that is not the judgment of God. But in that moment, in, in every moment, even if something fortunate happens to you, God's judgment is acting if we know how to recognize it. And I think one of the reasons John is the litmus test, do you recognize this witness as from God, is that John is a signal, and he's one who looks for a sign. Right, so John himself is the sign, but he's the one who is attuned to the signs and telling people to look for signs. And Advent is the season in which we remind ourselves, let ourselves be reminded that the work of God is hidden and secret. And we have to discern it. We have to become good judges in order to recognize the judgment of God that's doing good in our lives. And I, I want to make sure no one's hearing us say, if their lives are going to hell, God's doing that to them. Right. But whatever's happening in our lives, good or bad, fortunate or or disastrous, God's judgment is there if we pay attention. And we we need to recognize that, discern that, in the way that John discerned Jesus out of the crowd the way that John discerned these Sadducees and Pharisees out of the crowd and, and then speak with that kind of prophetic hope of even when we recognize the viper and the lion and the bear, we are, we're discerning we're, we're, if we're speaking the truth, we're cutting the wheat from the shaft, right? We're, we're discerning the difference between the serpent that's lifted up in the wilderness. That is a healing presence from the serpent that's striking people and killing them with its with its venom can I, I just want to share this real quick so i'm i'm sitting here right now as we're talking with my foot up i've had my second foot surgery in two years and i had somebody from our my church say and i hope he wasn't serious i think he might have been say last year you had foot surgery and this year you're having it again what didn't you learn the first time that god is putting you through this again that you might learn and obviously like I think we've taken care of that question. I think you just did. God doesn't send you to foot surgeries and, and break your foot a second time because you failed to learn a lesson. However, not to throw that question completely out, as I've been sitting here this time, something interesting happened. I became very aware of it today, and that is I'm a very thankful person when I know that something good happened to me. I don't have issues with saying thank you, right? However, I've realized I'm not remotely thankful enough because I don't, I never realized how many good things are happening around me until I didn't have the health. And so I was forced to sit, like I've been forced to sit in a room and just listen to the world around me, people calling from church. Jacqueline taking care of the family all these things that I was so healthy previously I just never realized this machine that is working around me amazingly mm -hmm. people the systems like there's a lot of goodness in my life that isn't always immediately like offering you something yeah and so 
when you say like, I don't think God's judgment put me here, but because it's always happening, I realized there's a marketable difference between saying thank you when something good happens and then being the kind of person who can recognize goodness around them and live in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. Yeah. So there's a very convicting moment to realize like, I only say thank you when something actually lands in my hand, mm-hmm. but there is so much to be thankful. So much is working around me that I don't even know. Yeah. And it's yeah. just working so well that this has helped me see that. And it was convicting. It was like a moment of like a pain. Like I've missed so much time being thankful, but, but this is really also exciting because I'm going to get to do this now. Yeah. So Absolutely. his judgment happened in an yes. act of misfortune. But not the misfortune itself was not the judgment. the judgment. Right. That's right. right. And that, that that line in Isaiah about the coming king, he shall not judge by what he sees. That's right? it. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness. But in righteousness. Yeah. And that that's i think what advent is about like you can't see you have to in the language of paul you have to see what can't be seen and hear what can't be heard and when you see what can't be seen and hear what can't be heard that's when you will recognize the judgment of god that's actually it is convicting it is painful but it's unharming you it's healing you toward the person you're called to be and called to be with and for others so that we can live steadfastly Right in in the language of the liturgy, in unity, constancy, and peace. All right, Brewer, bring us home. <laughs> My bringing us home was I was going to say, all right, Chris, pray us out. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pray last week, and I'm under too much conviction right now. Well, I'm not under any at all, so I guess I'll go ahead and pray. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, 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 kidding. But I will pray. I'm happy to pray, even being under conviction. Gracious God, Lord, let us welcome, let us pray for, be open to your judgment, your judgment upon us that starts and has started in the house of God. Lord, I do pray that we would, that we would recognize, recognize when these difficult words come to us that you would give us the grace to recognize your judgment that is always happening all around us and lord that we would be transformed made holy as you are holy and that our hearts would be turned Toward the poor. In them you are with us always. We trust, 
Lord, your work, and I pray that that we would trust in your goodness and the goodness of your work among us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.